You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Now, do we have uh, any questions from the audience? Okay, let me get my uh, handy port-a-mic going here. Port-a-mic. I don't know if I'd like that phrase. Yeah. It's, yeah. Like, yeah. it's like yeah. port-a-john, but, yeah. but Mike. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. John's brother. Yes. Okay. Uh, Hi, guys. Um, Hi. One of my typical questions for writers, do you start with the plot idea and add characters? Do you start with the characters and put them in and see what kind of plot emerges? Or do they sort of evolve in parallel? Uh, for me, I'm, I'm all over the map as far as that goes. I mean, um, it seems like every time I write a book, it's got some slightly different beginning point. And sometimes it's not even a character or a plot. Sometimes it's an image of something going on, which is how my first book, Rainfall, got started. Um, Inside Out was more this concept. I mean, I read those uh, Mazzetti pieces in the New York Times, and I thought, what is going on here? How do you explain it? And then, because I write thrillers, I thought, whoa, maybe those tapes weren't destroyed. Maybe they were stolen. And then, well, all right, but who would have stolen them? Well, he'd have to have, a, he'd have, to have access. He'd have to be extraordinarily skilled. And then you're off and running, just asking the who, what, where, when, why, and how questions. And then, okay, so you have this guy, and he stole the tapes, and how would he, what would be the logistics? I mean, this is a very dangerous operation that he's trying to carry out. Um, and uh, what would the government do in response? Oh, they would probably try to bring a guy like Ben Trevin, who's uh, also a pretty, uh, pretty badass guy, to try to recover the tapes. Okay, but what would the first guy, Larison, do to prevent that from, you know, and then that's how Inside Out went. Now, I usually start with a problem, something that bugs me, something that I, I've, is just a, a situation that I find unacceptable. And then I begin populating it with, with characters. I begin, well, you know, this problem, if I was going to feel it from the inside out, would be not just borrow a, a title <laughs> from my co-writer here, but if I were going to do that, yes, exactly. Um, and then, you know, which characters would be necessary, you know, would, and, and then a story begins to develop and scenes begin to develop. And it's, it's really just sort of a, a very intuitive process. And it begins to gel about a couple weeks into the process. Um, I begin thinking, well, what has to happen? And a, a skeletal plot begins to form. And I'll actually, usually I'll, I'll plot out, and I'll do a, a rather elaborate outline, but then I throw it away. And because uh, the, the book has to proceed scene by scene with a sense of it has to, it, unexpected things have to happen. And very often, if you write by you, this outline you've done, every, it, it becomes programmatic. And you, you, ha you sort of have to trust your instincts. But I like telling myself the story first and getting that sort of in my bones. And then when I put it down on the page, I allow myself to just to let the language and the pace of the scenes and everything else begin to dictate the actual flow of the novel. Oh, it's being recorded for the radio station. Okay, I have two questions, one for uh, David and one for Barry. Now, if I ask you these, are you going to do what Obama says? Are I going to answer the second question first, or um, just whichever yes. one we can remember? Palad maybe no. <laughs> Paladino and Sutherland. I haven't heard of them, but you said they were the in the PI world. They're like the best uh, breed in west of the Mississippi. Yeah. And uh, I was just wondering, how many people worked there, and 
what do they do? Were these the high-profile uh, we cases were, that were oh, cited in your oh yeah, we little were, bio? Uh, we, we did three Hells Angels cases. We did the DeLorean trial. We did the Michael Jackson case. We did the uh, Lincoln Savings and Loan. Um, we, we were a, a pretty connected firm. And, it was, and, was, and the, as a result, those, those cases gave me real windows into how these, these things kind of opened up. Um, and, you know, we, we were anywhere from like six to 12 people at any given time. It kind of, you know, you know as, as people came and went and as the caseload increased, it decreased. But there were a core of about five or six investigators, and we all had different skills. Um, Paul Palladino, Jack, Jack Palladino, what a name, Jack Palladino was um, the boss, and Sandra Sutherland was his wife, and she's Australian, and they're a, a, a really interesting, her name is Sandra, Sandra Son Sutherland. And um, Jack's younger brother, Paul, probably should have been an engineer, but he just kind of got dragged into this thing, and it didn't bring out his best side sometimes, <laughs> but that's what made him a really good investigator in cases that other people just didn't want to touch, because he was just like a ferret. And um, would do things most of us would find just, a, just a, a little bit across the line. But for Paul, it was just, nah, you just, that's what you got to do. So he would just, and he was the guy who, whenever we thought, nah, let's not do this. Paul would be the one, okay, I'll do it. And so he had that skill. And uh, then the rest of us, uh, it's actually a great job for lawyers who got sick of pushing paper and for journalists who, especially in this world, you know, the, the current environment, um, need work. And... Um, because you're basically, you find people, you talk to them, you write it up. But, but the cases that were cited sounded like they were uh, like political Lincoln savings and... Uh, well, they, they had, a lot of them have political dimensions. But, but I didn't hear any like, the first, as soon as you hear PI, you think murder, but you weren't doing... Oh, murder. no, we did a lot of murder cases. You did murder cases. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I forget okay. what his name, uh, what was his name? He was a co-owner in the Seattle Seahawks for a while, and he was a, a big property developer out in Stockton, and he was involved in a murder case where two guys mm -hmm. took a real estate agent out and uh, killed him with a crossbow, figure that <laughs> one out, and, um, and then rolled and tried to implicate this millionaire, and Stockton district attorney just went full bore for this because it was a great, you know, you know, you got this prime target, and uh, it took two trials, but he was ultimately acquitted, but that, you know, that was a big... Um, you know, I mean, we worked a number of murder cases. It's just it, very often, I'm trying to think of other prominent murder cases, but um, you know, yeah. that's sort of your, you do a lot of that. But okay. civil, you ultimately, you're always wanting civil cases, and Barry as an attorney will probably back me up on this, because there's more witnesses, which means there's more of a payday, and there's more money involved, and that's kind of what you're, you know, that's what you're after. Yeah. Okay. People respond to incentives. One for Barry. <laughs> we have to lighten up here a little, so uh, my question is, what might have happened if the oil man, George Bush, was still president when BP's oil spill fouled the Gulf? <laughs> I just thought you might want to play with that. I think the government would have dealt with it almost exactly the same. They would have encouraged the uh, establishment media to describe this catastrophe in the Gulf as a spill or as a leak because those words are comforting. They minimize what's actually going on. Did you ever see those undersea underwater camera video images of what's coming out from the seabed. Does it look like a spill to you? A spill is if I knock over this little glass of water. A leak is what happens if there's a hole in your umbrella or your roof. They're, they're discreet and uh, they've already happened actually. If you talk about a spill, it's already happened and now you just have to clean it up. It's not an accident that, um, that most of the media has adopted 
uh, nomenclature that's entirely inappropriate for what's actually happening or was happening, if the most recent reports can be believed, um, at the bottom of the seafloor. You've seen pictures. You know what it looked like to me? It looked like an eruption. It looked like a, what you see in a volcano. Does anyone ever talk about, you know, like Mount Vesuvius was leaking today? <laughs> there was a magma spill. Nobody talks like that. It's an eruption or a geyser or spewing. I mean, those are the sorts of um, words we use to describe what I saw coming from those video cameras. So uh, I blogged about this, actually. This is one of those times when I, uh, well, I actually combined my novelist and blogging interests, and I, I blogged about it uh, as uh, on April 19th when this first got reported. I had a collection of uh, BP uh, executives and um, Bureau of Mineral Management officials and one very slick White House PR operative in a situation room at the White House determining how they're going to handle this. And the first thing they decided on is in all the times we talk about this, it's a spill or a leak. Those are the two words you use. We don't use words like explosion. We don't use, anyway, if, if you're curious, go to my blog. It's on my website. I think you'll enjoy it. So no, I don't think there would have been any difference at all in the way. Yeah, if, it was uh, on, if it was on land, we would have called it a gusher because <laughs> that's what you call those things. And it was, an, it was an underwater gusher. I just, uh, but that conjures up unhelpful imagery. That's true. We have to calm everyone down. Is it? Yeah. All right, so my question actually comes from one of the things you said about researching contract killers to try and get into the mindset. I mean, I just thought it was so interesting that, okay, access to the Teamsters on the waterfront and, and that knowledge of Anna, and so that's, so that's where one story comes from. And the other, you know, trying to research the mindset of a contract killer and what makes them tick. What did you actually do to research that? Where do you go for something like that? Well, I hired myself out. Check um, out your crossbow. <laughs> so, so for anything that you're, I think that you're going to write about, um, I'd be curious about for David's thoughts on this too. But I, I think of it generally speaking, there are three levels of what you're trying to do, uh, and of course one bleeds over into the next. But there's personal experience, there's research, and then there's imagination, and you you bring to bear all these things. So, um, uh, in the course of my life, I've known some people who had some pretty tough jobs. I wouldn't call them uh, contract killers necessarily or, or assassins, but certainly have been in the killing business um, on behalf of the U.S. government. So that's certainly a help. And uh, I read some really excellent books, including one I would highly, highly recommend called um, On Killing, The Psychological Costs of Learning to Kill that's in a, War that and is Society. I yeah. second that. That's Fantastic. a fabulous book. By a guy named Dave Grossman. And uh, that book did more to open my eyes up to, to open my eyes to what it takes to kill at close range than anything that I've, uh, that I've come across before or since. So, you know, and then talking to more people and then really just um, going on my long walks, uh, which is what I do when I'm trying to figure things out and just asking myself, well, who is this guy and what were his formative experiences based on, you know, it's a funny thing, like, the phrase internet knowledge has a bad rap, but the truth is internet knowledge is neither good nor bad. It's what you're using it for. So for me, internet knowledge is a tremendously useful thing to acquire. That's not the end point. It should be the beginning point. You're trying to get familiar with a certain subject so you start to know what questions to ask. Internet knowledge is great for that. So, so knowing some people and talking to those people and reading Grossman's book and that sort of thing uh, gave me a good framework. And then from there, and then my job is to start thinking about, okay, here's this guy that I'm working on. And based on everything that I've been able to learn, call it internet knowledge or secondhand knowledge or whatever. 
what really makes this guy tick? Why does he do what he does? What would he do? How do I get to know him better and better? And uh, it's an iterative process. And I, I, Barry touches on something I think it's really important, and that is this is where experience does pay off in that, you know, um, when you have met people, when you've been in a room with somebody, you know, I remember that when we represented, uh, we represented some of the most major drug dealers on the West Coast, and particularly marijuana guys in the early, my first book was about the, a breed of marijuana guy who disappeared from the scene in the early 80s when the Reagan administration decided to go after marijuana because informants rolled up on the guys who were most harmless. I mean, if you're going to turn informant, who are you going to snitch on? You know, the guys you're not scared of. So, of course, that creates a vacuum, and it, that's when the, the complete criminalization of the drug trade took over. You know, all the guys that were wild but not evil were gone. And, um, you know, it's sort of like, be careful what you wish for. And that was really one of those things. But I got to know these guys, and, and I got to know other guys. And, yeah, I mean, I, I had clients who were killers. And you, and you sit in a room with them, and it does affect you in a certain way. Not necessarily – you can't think it through. It's just sort of an intuitive thing. And, but then you have to do book research. And what I find now is that whenever you're doing interviews and people say, you know, what research do you do, did you do? And they're expecting you to have gone, you know, and done something. And I, I pity the poor historical novelist. You know, did you go back in time? <laughs> and – you know, no, I didn't, frankly. I, uh, I tried. I tried. I, got, yeah, I tried to find Mr. Peabody and Sherman, but they just weren't available. And, you know, book knowledge, you know, just like it isn't, you know, it isn't automatically bad because right. it's only in a book. Right. You know, it's just you have to – and again, it's like do you allow that book reading to affect you? Right. And, and I'm, I'm just sometimes astonished. It's like libraries or the Internet. Again, it's information. It's how you use it. And exactly. there's su suddenly now, like, book learning has this bad rap. Unless you go out and do it yourself, by gosh, you, you don't really, really know what it is. And you want to go, how could anybody write anything that way? Um, I, I, so, yeah, I, I wanted to touch on the whole idea that you, knowing people in, in particular and having been in a physical space with them affects you in a certain way that's really key. But then it is. You just do a lot of reading, a lot of reading. And I don't know about you, but when, when you start writing, you sort of become an antennae and you'll just, you'll just a little news story that, oh, yeah. you know, sud probably you would skip, but suddenly just one little word and you go, wait a minute. And it becomes really valuable for just one little detail in one little place you're writing. I like the way you put that. It's what you do with it. Um, I think that's, um, that's really key. And I think if I, have, uh, if I have a knack, maybe I have several and, and a lot of things I'm not very good at either, but one of the knacks I think I have is knowing what questions to ask. And, uh, and who to put them to, whether that's a person or a book or whatever. So I think that's a pretty lucky knack because if you don't know what questions to ask, it's going to be hard. I mean, uh, you know, I don't know. What, what are you going to do? You really have to write from pretty direct personal experience. And, and I suppose that's possible, too. You could fall into the danger of what David was talking about before. Um, you know, don't write what you know. Write um, what you don't know about what you know. But, yeah, I think I'm, I seem pretty good at uh, knowing what questions to ask, and that's, that's helped me a lot. I worked on the first one, yeah. I tried to avoid it, actually. I remember when the case came in, I went to my boss, and, and he came in, and he was really proud. He goes, we've got the Michael Jackson case. And I said, oh, that's great. So who do we work for, the extortionist or the child molester? <laughs> and then I paused. I said, not that it matters. <laughs> and, and he said, good attitude. And uh, then I went into his office afterwards. I said, look, everybody in the firm is going to be dying to work on this case. It's a headline case. I said, there's nothing about it that appeals to me. Nothing. There was a great, I said, I'll take everything else. If they want to unload, I'll take that caseload so I can avoid this case. But then we got under man and I got drawn in at the end. So, yeah. Well, I just thought I'd say when, when the O.J. Simpson case happened, um, 
um, um, so, um, he cut her throat and all that. Her, yeah, yeah. No, 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 Cole Simpson, and this, and there's part of what's, what's going on this media, this whole media thing going on, and and then two years ago, I, about two years ago, I was briefing through this book about horrific crimes, horrific crimes, and I was just briefing through it. I wasn't looking for anything, just briefing through it, and I saw a picture of um, Nicole Simpson's um, throat cut, and, and it showed a real graphic picture of it, and I was just thinking, this is kind of strange, because in the, during the O.J. Simpson case, none of that was ever shown, right? Yeah. Uh, not I, that I know of. What, yeah, actually, our connection no, with the O.J. thing was the fact that the no, reason... I, yeah, go ahead. I just wanted to say, that's all I wanted to say. Oh, okay. I thought that was kind of strange, that it, that was something that was never shown and I saw it myself in a book, and I wasn't even looking for it or anything. I just thought that was a little no. strange. Sure, you well, were looking for it. Yeah. <laughs> there's a uh, there's an interesting connect. When we worked the Michael Jackson case. Um, but I guess they pretty much hit that. Well, uh, yeah, but uh, the, the connection between Michael Jackson and OJ was that we were working for the plaintiff. We were working for the 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 14 year old boy Jordan Chandler, and his family, and we were interviewing witnesses that we felt were valuable. And we were communicating with the DA's office. There was a sergeant who was the liaison, who was with the LAPD. It wasn't the DA's office, it was the police department. And we would give these witnesses and we'd give, you know, descriptions of what we, why we think they would be valuable and why the detectives should go out and see them. Well, of course, you know, the police department is a top-down kind of authority thing, so she would get the list and then she'd kick it upstairs. It would always come back down with witnesses eliminated, saying, no, you're not going to see them, not going to see them, no. And we didn't know, we thought maybe, like Johnny Cochran did have some friends in the DA's office. It may have been he was backdooring and saying, look, you don't need to talk to them. I'll tell you what they've, what they've got to say. And the DA's office said, why, you know, worry about it? We don't know. But the cops became so suspicious of the district attorney's office that when OJ, another celebrity, was suddenly, you know, facing, you know, criminal prosecution, they didn't take it to the DA's office. They wanted to go to a grand jury instead. And that's, that developed a huge rift between the DA's office and the police department, which is one of the major problems in the prosecution of OJ. You know, it had it, and it had its roots in the, in the Jackson case, so. Okay, forget craft. Let's descend into serious paranoia. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about the disparagement of book knowledge. We've talked about the disparagement of the blogosphere. We've talked about information filtering. How intentional do you feel this is? Um, well, I, book knowledge, I think, when people disparage book knowledge, it's just thoughtlessness many times. Um, You're not that perfect. Well, I mean, I guess, I, I think the way, at least David and I were talking about it here, is the notion of, um, I mean, I, I think this is what, the way you're talking about it, the notion that, hey, how can you write a novel if all you did was um, uh, read all these books on the, for example, the history of the period that you're writing about. And I, I think when people say something like that or disparage that kind of book knowledge, I just think it's, it's thoughtless. I mean, there's, there's, a lot, there's a great expression I like, which is never attribute to malice what can adequately be explained by stupidity. And there's, there's a lot of thoughtlessness in the world. Um, a lot of unexamined assumptions and things that people think are axiomatic that upon just a little bit of reflection you realize make no sense. Like this Time Magazine cover. Actually, a classic example. I mean, I don't know how many millions of people have seen this cover and say, yeah, you know, we, we really better not get out of Afghanistan. When if you just think about it for a minute, you go, that's totally illogical. It's the, you know, the opposite conclusion is the one you should, um, if, if you're not going to go any deeper, the opposite conclusion is the one you would want to draw. So, um, disparagement of the internet, uh, I'm sorry, of the blogosphere, I think is entirely, not entirely, I mean, some of that's thoughtless too, but mostly deliberate. Um, mainstream media uh, organs are going out of business and uh, they recognize the threat that the blogosphere 
presents to them, both to their livelihoods and also to uh, the veneer of their integrity, to their status. What do you do in a situation like that? When I was a lawyer, what they taught us was if you can, uh, if you can win on the law, argue the law. If you can't win on the law, argue the facts. And if you can't win on the facts, argue policy. And if none of that's going to work, then just try to impeach the credibility of the witness. You know how they say that in Texas? It's a pound the law, pound the facts, pound the table. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Pound a witness, I guess, be the last thing. So, um, so that's, what, that's where a lot of this is coming from. I mean, it's uh, the many uh, privileged establishment journalists have an inflated view of themselves and their importance and, uh, and an unsupported view of their own integrity. They're not used to criticism because there's, there's no way to criticize. There has been no way to criticize before the advent of the blogosphere. So to suddenly be subjected to all this withering, uh, well-sourced, well-argued criticism, what are they going to do in response? Well, they have two things. I mean, one is you can change your practices or you can get angry um, at the, uh, the interlopers. What's that Gandhi expression? You know, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. I'll tell you very briefly um, an interesting experience I just had. Um, I wrote, uh, NPR asked if I would write a little piece for them on, my, on a thriller that I love. And so I wrote about 1984. And I had to go through four drafts. If you want to read about this experience, again, it's on my blog on barryisler.com. So this, uh, this piece I wrote went through four drafts because um, what I was doing was, in discussing the Orwellian memory hole, I was talking about various establishment media journalists like Tom Friedman and Charles Krautheimer, who have been wrong about everything they've ever written about. I mean, everything. It's stunning. Charles Krautheimer has never been right about anything. I mean, name something that Charles Krautheimer was, I, I can't think of anything, certainly not anything having to do with war. And yet he's continued, he's con he continues to be trotted out as some sort of serious foreign policy expert. It's fascinating. And these guys never account for their mistakes. So that was one of the things I did. I just said, so, you, you can't read, uh, you can't engage with these people and not think of the Orwellian memory hole. Or you, if you read about uh, Newspeak in the, in the novel, you can't help but notice that, well, we don't have a ministry of truth, but we do have mainstream media organs, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and even NPR, all of which refuse to use the word torture in their reporting. Now, I'm not making this up. NPR's uh, ombudsman a year ago, Alicia Shepard, wrote a whole article for NPR about why they won't use the word torture, why they say enhanced interrogation techniques instead. So um, anyway, as part of my piece for NPR, I just said, not, not sarcastically, I just said that it, this is an example of Newspeak, even NPR, which is often mistakenly considered to be some sort of liberal media source, um, won't use the word torture, but NPR wouldn't go for any of this. So my article got edited and edited until finally my editor, Mark, and my agent um, had to just, I, they said, look, and I said, I was, I don't, this is going on longer than I meant. Anyway, I, I was just getting frustrated and I said, look, maybe I've written about the wrong novel for you. And one of the things they said to me is they kept telling me it's too political. So I said to this woman I was in touch with, you know, this is 1984. <laughs> telling me that my take on 1984 is too political is like if I were writing about the Bible and you're telling me it's too much about God. There's just, I don't know, I mean, it's, it's impossible to write in a meaningful way about 1984 without getting political. But anyway, so it, it became clear what they didn't like. They didn't mind my argument, that, which is essentially that Orwell's novel is relevant uh, and important today. What they objected to was certain categories of evidence that I was attempting to use. So when this whole thing was over and, and Mark and Dan uh, watered it down even more, with, with my blessing, because um, I was just so sick of it, and NPR wrote it up, then I wrote a piece for my blog on the experience of what happened here and what we can tell about NPR as a result. And as usual, as David was telling you, I, I like to think accurately. You know, it's not like I, it's not ad hominem. I'm not sarcastic or anything like that. It's just like this is what happened and this is what I think we can tell about uh, NPR as a mainstream media um, organ 
operating according to mainstream or establishment media rules. So, you know, who am I? I'm just a blogger. I'm just a little guy. I'm not NPR, right? What did NPR do? They called up my, uh, my publisher, uh, Harper Collins, and gave them an earful about, like, who is this guy? You know, how dare he? Basically, this is the nature of the conversation. How dare he criticize us? So now my editor called me, and he was pissed. Um, and I said, I don't understand this. I know. How, what writer, are they going to say when stirring, I brought Writers stirring stuff up. My God, who do they think they are? <laughs> you think they're writers or something. I know. So it was fascinating to me that um, their attitude, I, he said, you know, I said, why don't they just engage me? I mean, uh, all the blogs where I'm syndicated to and including, including my own, there's a little box and it says, leave a comment. You know, if they disagree, um, they have their own take. I, I would... I mean, this is one of the things that, to me, defines the culture of the blogosphere. We discuss. We proof each other's um, pieces. I mean, it's, you have to be, it's like a scientific journal. You have to be subjected to peer review to be taken seriously. And NPR refused to do that with me because I'm a dirty, unwashed blogger. And, uh, and I started thinking about royalty and the kind of um, culture that defines, say, medieval royalty. You had all these clans in Europe, right? I'm, I'm no historian. But they all war with each other. Um, and there's all sorts of infighting. They're all trying to get as much of the pie for themselves as they can. But the one thing that they agree on, even on a subconscious level, is that if a peasant were ever to raise his hand and criticize someone, it didn't matter whether it was an Italian royalty that was, getting, that was subject to the criticism of some French royalty or whoever, all the clans would come together. They would absolutely not respond substantively to the peasant's criticism. Why? Because that would demonstrate, that would be to implicitly acknowledge that the peasant had standing to criticize the royalty. So I was just fascinated to see the way NPR went about this. Instead of doing what a blogger would do, which is just, hey, respond. Come on, you know, this will be fun. Let's do it. It'll be enlightening and interesting. Instead of doing that, they went to someone who they thought was of the royalty to say, look, we've got to slap this person down. This is, this is absurd. He criticized us. Fascinating. Well, I, I'm wondering what my own NPR station will do if I broadcast this anecdote next week. Let's find out. Yeah, 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 there you go. I will. Let's go. Yeah, yeah. I like that attitude. Uh, listen next week between 6 and 7, and you'll hear this anecdote. I would also just add, you know, as far as you know, the, the response to book knowledge and everything. Remember, America has an incredible anti-intellectual tradition. And, um, and I always like to think of intellectual history is the graveyard of common sense. And um, <laughs> everything that you know, people think, oh, well, that's just common sense that we da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And, and ultimately, it's always proved to be basically wrong um, in a lot of ways. Um, and, but it still has this incredible power. Simplicity, and the truth is always really simple. It really just gets down to this and this. And, and that's very beguiling. And it's very easy for people to be manipulated because of that desire for simplicity. And I can't blame people for that. And I'm, as, I, mean, I studied math in college. And very, I mean, we're always taught, you know, if, if your solution is too complicated, it's probably wrong. You know, there is an elegance to math. There is a simplicity in a certain sense. Um, until you get to quantum theory. And then everything blows up. Um, but that's just, the, that's just the thing. I mean, and I think that people, especially in the political environment, always want to have, you know, they, they go to these core values, this is true, and whatever confirms that. And this has been shown in, in research recently, is that people really don't want to be informed. What they want is their presuppositions rewarded and confirmed. And this is why people drift towards certain media outlets. And this is why I, f I force myself to read conservatives, because I don't want to get in that trap. And this is, you know, I picked up Andrew Bacevich because I thought, well, you know, here's a conservative that I, I think, you know, I may be able to read. And I find him absolutely, he's like one of the true, honest brokers of information, I think, out there. Yeah. And, really um, impressive guy. Yeah, yeah. I just, uh, 
And, and I'm, I look for people like that just so it, because I'm constantly afraid that I'm falling into some sort of intellectual, ideological rut. And it's easy to do with the media the way it is. So. Well, you know, it strikes me that uh, when you were talking about the relationship between blogospheres and the mainstream media, it's like the relationship. You guys are the MP3 files uh, <laughs> of the news world. I mean, and the, the music industry has reacted in the same way. It's not like they're trying they're trying very hard to make money. They're suing the users. Right? And this is the same approach that the media is approaching with the blogosphere. Yeah, it's very interesting to see. Um, you see this in publishing, too, the complaints about technology. Like, well, the reason that we're suffering financially is because of all these technological changes. It's another thing I wrote. <laughs> I've written about uh, thereby endearing myself to, um, to my publisher and, and some others. But, um, you know, there's an old joke in Silicon Valley, which is, I think it was said about uh, the now defunct Digital Equipment Corporation, and that is that uh, if DEC were marketing sushi, they would market it as cold, draw dead fish. <laughs> and so I wrote this piece once about publishers, and, and their publishers are terrible at what should be their core competencies of packaging and positioning branding, marketing, selling books. They suck. There are certain exceptions, and a broken clock is always right twice a day, and sometimes they'll get it right, maybe not just because a broken clock is right, but maybe they, they actually call the shot once in a while. But overall, they're terrible. They're terrible at the most fundamental aspects of the business. And then they complain that they're losing money, and of course, look, it's hard to look in the mirror and say, God, I'm, I'm really responsible for this rut I'm in. Um, I have to do something. I have to change my behavior to get out. That's psychologically difficult. It's much more comforting to say, goddamn technology. Uh, what can I do? Um, and it's the same thing with um, establishment journalists who are, again, sort of collusive, corrupt, lazy, complicit, and, and often are, in fact, selected by the corporations that sponsor them precisely because they're stupid and manipulable. How can you look in a mirror and say, wow, <laughs> I was selected because I'm stupid and manipulable and corruptible? <laughs> That's really difficult. So you say, you know, the reason, or how can you, if you're Bill Keller, of the, the editor of the New York Times, for example, how can you say, the reason nobody trusts us is because I won't use the word torture when Americans are doing it. I'll only use it when Chinese or Iranians are doing it. He's argued for this. Um, maybe that's why people aren't buying the New York Times. That's a difficult thing to say because he's responsible for that. Instead, he says, God, what are we going to do about these wackos in the blogosphere? They don't charge for content. They don't have to have a Baghdad bureau. They're undercutting us on costs. That's a comforting way to look at the world. He's not responsible for any of his own failures. So that's, uh, that's just a common problem uh, in, in all endeavors. You have to, there, <laughs> there are two kinds of people in the world, uh, the kinds that think there are two kinds in there. <laughs> but anyway, um, <laughs> it's like, I mean, of course, it's always a, a continuum, but there are people who are more amenable to taking personal responsibility for their shortcomings and others who are always looking to blame it on someone else. Well, we're not going to blame anything on anyone else because uh, I hope you guys are all going to pop over there and pick up some of these guys' books. They're going to be here to sign them. And uh, thank you for joining me. And we'll be back next month with another couple of writers. I'm not sure who yet, but uh, if you have any questions or com comments, uh, you can write me at the Agony Column. Listen next week. I am going to broadcast at least that anecdote because that is a great anecdote. <laughs> and my NPR station loves me about as much as uh, Barry's publisher loves him when they <laughs> publish these things. So if I can put a spur under their sandal, it'll be, be next Sunday between 6 and 7 p.m., on KUSP 88.9 FM. Grab a couple of pitchforks and torches. and yeah. <laughs> Storm the station on Monday morning and complain. <laughs> Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.